Howdy all you good folks, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Yes, it's your esteemed host here, Sir Andrew Robert Esquire, back with another duo of debauched degeneracy, hoping to come across something with as much bite and as much obscenity as the legendary Video Nasty artefacts themselves. You'd be right in guessing that my objective has not changed from the last 28 main episodes. I'm covering a self-appointed list of violent films, which is drawn from the same font as the infamous DPP's Nasties list that caused a whole brouhaha back in the 80s in the UK, way before even I was born. In antithesis to the supposed crimes being committed by dealers and distributors, I'm looking at films from the same era that by the same token should have also been Nasties for their levels of gore, sex and violence. I'm trying to highlight the hypocrisy and the silliness of those times, because despite giving us fans a shopping list of must-see titles, people actually got put in jail and were fined for this, which is absolutely wrong. But enough about the legalities, though, and on to the gist. After last week's return to Jallo territory, we're returning to another previously covered subject, one that is certainly not going to be up everyone's alley. The Rape and Revenge film. Now, the two examples we've got today, however, are not pure rape and revenge, as we'll see, but they do have very similar elements combined with a whole load of other influences too. So we'll dub this week Pseudo-Rape and Revenge Week. The movies this week are Mother's Day by Charles Kaufman and Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah, both of which also have extremely interesting relationships to the nasty scandal. So let's find out what is so interesting by starting with Mother's Day. A couple, Terry and Charlie, graduate from a growth opportunity programme and hitch a ride with an old woman that they've graduated with. When the car suddenly breaks down, two inbred hicks attack the car, decapitating Charlie and brutally beating up Terry before the old woman garrots her to death, revealing that she is the boy's mother. 
In other cities, Beverly Hills, New York and Chicago, three lifelong friends, Jackie, Abby and Trina, meet up in New Jersey to go on an annual road trip. After reminiscing about the good times they've had, they set up camp only for someone to be spying on them. The next morning, the trio goes skinny dipping, and the someone is revealed to be the two brothers from the opening, Ike and Adley, who later kidnap them later that night and bring them to a house in the centre of the woods, where the old lady, Mother, resides. Restraining all three of the girls, Mother singles out Jackie as the one to be first, prompting Ike and Adley to play sadistic, brutal games with her, such as forcing her into role-play situations, which ultimately end up in her rape and assault by the pair. The next morning, while Ike, Adley and Mother are relaxing after breakfast, Abby and Trina get loose from their bindings and attempt escape using a sleeping bag, resulting in Abby's hands being torn by the friction. Trina unlocks the door and re-enters the home to get the injured Abby, and the pair of them then search for Jackie. Searching Ike's and Adley's bedroom, they find Terry and Charlie's corpses in a closet, and then Jackie's battered but still alive body bundled into a drawer. Getting caught by the two brothers on their way out, Mother suddenly calls for them, claiming to have been attacked by her feral sister Queenie, a savage who apparently roams the woods. The girls use this opportunity to escape, and settling Jackie down to recover, Abby sends Trina away to get help. She comes across their abandoned car, but is unable to start it, and approaches a police car which drives near her. It soon becomes clear that it's actually Ike in an outfit, and Trina flees, whilst Jackie dies from her injuries in Abby's arms. Managing to lose her pursuer, Trina despairs that Jackie has died, whilst Abby swears vengeance. Back at Mother's home, Adley begins to suspect his mother is lying about Queenie in order to control him and his brother, but she slaps down any opposition to the idea. Abby and Trina lay their friend to rest, before descending on Mother's house, distracting Adley enough to jam a knitting needle into his throat and swinging a claw hammer into his groin. An infuriated Ike attacks the pair, only for Abby to pour cleaning fluid down his throat, smashing a television over his head, and finally killing him by Trina stabbing him with an electric knife. Staying hidden, Mother is then discovered by the girls, and is suffocated using an inflatable sex toy, with Abby channelling the hatred for her own mother into her efforts. Whilst the girls lament all that has happened, the film ends just as a monstrous queenie jumps out at them from the bushes.
Released in 1980 to a rather negative reception, Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day is a satirical horror film which has elements of almost every genre there is. The narrative is a rough reworking of a rape and revenge plot, with some added slasher elements, splatter, thriller, and even comedy. Filmed mainly in Stillwater, New Jersey, with some shots in Connecticut and New York, Charles Kaufman explains that the film was made purely for commercial purposes, in both a bid to get his name on the map, as well as to make money for the producers. While the commercially driven product was made with this in mind, it still doesn't stop it from having something deeper to say. With a title like Mother's Day, it's not a surprise that the theme of motherhood is a recurring trope in the movie, as well as a cash-in on the idea of basing a slasher on a national holiday. The depiction of motherhood is different for each of our main girls. Jackie's mother is focused on financial success, and recommends a man to her who she sees as professional and equally financially successful, compared to Ted, Jackie's current man, who not only does not reciprocate her love, but lazes about drinking and taking drugs, whilst spouting about how embarrassing it is for a man to stay home whilst the girl goes out to work. Abby's mother is verbally abusive to her seemingly meek daughter, attacking her for abandoning her mother while she's sick, leading Abby to regard the yearly excursions as essential to her sanity. Trina's mother is like her daughter, focused on appearances and superficial achievement, praising the success of her daughter's dinner party by how many attractive men there are. By contrast, main antagonist mother, who has two sons rather than daughters, measures their success by how violent, brutal and controlling they are in their actions. Seemingly endorsing the idea that males are superior, she penalises her sons for allowing a woman to gain any sense of control, so they frequently gag or restrain the women using their hands. In a rather fickle sense, however, she believes that her word is the ultimate power, and she has complete dominion over her children, able to command them with simple instructions. These vastly different depictions of mothers is an essential part of the American satire and the commentary that the film builds throughout the film. Characters are often sniffing coke through $50 bills, they lament that marshmallows are the only real American food that there is, and there's also hobos who are spouting stuff about Rockefeller and also singing operas. Even Mother's House is a parody of everything apparently American. There's a devotion to family values where you must wipe your feet and kiss mum on the cheek. There's a masculine gym room with sports magazines and bodybuilding posters. There's a huge breakfast table cluttered with every commercial cereal you can think of, as well as cat food. There's an exercise regime every morning. Toys are posed in violent acts. It's kind of like the American dream of mom and apple pie that's been incredibly corrupted. Very similar to themes in Friday the 13th, Psycho, I mean there's even stuffed animals like Norman Bates's Parlour, and also Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The theme seems to echo the idea that American culture is seemingly all about contradictions. Mother insists that her children wipe their feet and give her a kiss, despite not being bothered and actually encouraging violent behaviour against other women. Trina's party demonstrates that she has aspirations of being rich and popular, yet most of the guests are either drunk or on drugs. Jackie is clearly productive and successful, but chooses to live with a bum, and subjects herself to mistreatment. Abby is stuck in her mother's apartment while looking after her, but she actually just dissociates and dreams of life on her own. It all suggests that the American dream is just that, a dream with little chance of being realised in full. Continuing from the aforementioned films that influence Kaufman's work, certain elements are recognisable lifts from these distinctly American works, 
like the shock ending of Queenie attacking the pair of girls, which is very similar to Jason's jump scare on Alice from the original Friday the 13th. The storyline is also a bit of a rip on 1973's Schoolgirls in Chains, which is also seized as a Section 3 title in the UK under its alternative title, Abducted. The boys are devoted to mother, similar to Norman Bates from Hitchcock's film, and there's even elements from Last House on the Left, as the pair lay their friend to rest before planning an elaborate revenge. Our main girls, however, are the most interesting characters in the film, with their own very distinctive traits. Trina is the more commercially oriented, she's seemingly rich, she sees the business opportunity in the lakeside country, and she has a focus on appearances like being into tarot cards and arranging dinner parties. Abby is more of the liberal free spirit, wanting the peace and solitude of the country, and also wishing for constant escapism, noting that the annual trips are the only time that she's able to get stoned and relax. Jackie is both easygoing, but also practical. She's able to efficiently plan the entire trip, and she's also an ace at fishing too. The three girls' relationship with each other is what is central to the plot of Mother's Day, They're all fleshed out in the opening sections of the film enough to endear us to them, and it's all the more saddening to see such foul depravity befall them while they're extremely happy. It's similar to the multiple instances of strong female friendship and bonds that pervade many of the other slasher films like Halloween, Prom Night, Black Christmas, or House on Sorority Row. If you want to know more about this sort of dynamic, though, check out Amanda Reyes on Twitter. She's under the moniker at Made for TV Mayhem, and she'd just recently done some threads on this importance of the female friendship dynamic in horror films. So anyone interested, just hit that up. There's loads more on Twitter. There's also an element of deliverance country folk versus city folks to the film, too, with the guitar-playing hicks outside the general store, and also our main two hillbillies, Ike and Adley. The store owner, too, is incredibly bigoted and assumes that the girls are merely lesbians and curses them, saying that they'll get what they deserve. Fair enough, they do accidentally trash his store, but the whole theme of class conflict is evident throughout the whole film, mostly with the comparison between our three main girls and their three tormentors. Both the themes of the American dream in relation to motherhood are also used in the violent scenes to a rather satirical effect. Mother is killed with an inflatable breast sex toy, almost like she's being killed with a depiction of motherhood, of breastfeeding, especially in combination with Abby's words of, we'll take care of you. It sort of seems to represent the idea of sexual power and ownership rather than repression, as in Mother's case. It's also notable that the previously meek Abby has finally channelled her inner aggression into avenging her innocent friend, and the fussy Trina, who previously coated herself in finery and turned her nose up at the idea of treading in bear shit, she's now more willing to get her hands dirty in these final scenes. They've both undergone a transition. It's interesting also how both the boys are killed too. Adley has a knitting needle rammed through his throat, rather symbolic of the stereotypical quiet elderly mother and his gonads are then impaled with a claw hammer, retribution for their friend's rape. But he's then muffled by a gag in the same way that the girls were bound before. It's almost like a really horribly inverted sexual position, a bit like a spit roast, with dangerous implements inserted at both ends, before ending his life quietly by suffocation. Ike, too, is killed with commercial cleaner rammed down his throat. He has a television smashed over his head, and then a brutal slashing with an electric knife. Each of them individually important symbols of the American household. Branded products, the all-knowing TV, and also cooking utensils used in mom's home cooking. 
As Adley's death was their spiritual revenge for what happened to Jackie, Ike's death is almost like turning the family's distinctly American values against them and killing them with the very things that seem to make them a close-knit family that they believe they are. Even the film's poster is a corruption of the famous painting Whistler's Mother, again referencing this idea of American satire. The filming of the production had only a few minor hiccups, despite being shot on a relatively minuscule budget of just $115,000. Mother's house was found in the woods of Newton, New Jersey, and had been empty for around 15 years prior to filming due to the previous owner having been murdered there. Kaufman originally wanted his brother Lloyd, the infamous guy who owns Troma, to have much more involvement in the project, but he ultimately was unable to contribute much other than producing it. The mound of excrement that Trina steps in was actually an edible combination of flour, sugar and other ingredients, so that the actress would not be shy in putting her foot in it. The only two issues of note, really, were that of Michael McCleary, who played Adley. He turned up to the set one morning and apparently had too much to drink the previous night and he ended up vomiting all over Beatrice Pons, who played Mother, delaying the shooting until everything was cleaned up and McCleary was sobered up. Kaufman also explained on a director's commentary that one of the three actresses was found to be having a relationship offset with one of the actors who was playing the boys. It's not clear who these two were, but Kaufman reportedly asked that they postpone the relationship just while filming, because he was worried that the tension between the actors would not be believable enough when they had the scripted tortures and confrontations. Now, the main girls in the film were played by Nancy Hendrickson, who played Abby, Deborah Luce, who played Jackie, and Tiana Pierce, who played Trina. But they have no other work of note, really, which is genuinely surprising, as I felt that they were the strongest thing about the whole film. Their acting was pretty damn good, and you felt really invested in them as characters go. Ike was played by character actor Frederick Coffin, who'd had small roles in a variety of things, like the slasher film Alone in the Dark... He was in Hard to Kill alongside Steven Seagal, uh, Wayne's World, and he was even in an episode of The X-Files. Adley was played by Michael McCleary, who's oddly credited in this as Billy Ray McQuaid, but he'd been in Alien Space Avenger, and he also had a small role in L.A. Confidential. Mother was played by actress Beatrice Pons, who was under the pseudonym of Rose Ross. Actress Nancy Hendrickson would later reveal that Pons assumed a pseudonym because she was desperate for the role, but could not really take it as she was a member of the Screen Actors Guild, which prevented her from starring in a non-union film. So she took the chance anyway, and it kind of paid off. She's incredibly wacky in this role, and it really suits her. Ernie was played by Robert Collins, who was a British guy who'd made small appearances in Prom Night 3, and also the Goosebumps TV series. Dobber, the idiot who Jackie used to date, was played by Peter Fox, who'd later have an appearance in the sci-fi zombie popcorn flick, Night of the Comet. The Lazy Ted was played by Kevin Lowe, who's had a wealth of mixed roles too, like Baywatch, Rush Hour, Scrubs, and he even did some voice acting in the video game L.A. Noir. Most of the actors at Trina's party were played by members of the crew, for budgetary reasons, but three noticeable exceptions were Trina's mother, who was played by Kaufman's mother, the cocaine guy, who was played by Kaufman's father, and there's also the professor in the opening still photographs, who was played by Charles Kaufman himself. Now, director Charles Kaufman didn't really do much outside of this film, so it is unfortunate that the film didn't kickstart his career the way that he'd hoped. 
Of course, he was related to Lloyd Kaufman, the founder of Troma Entertainment, so his name is frequently cited in Troma circles, and he went on to be a writer on children's TV as well, like the animated shows of Ghostbusters and also Dennis the Menace. He also co-wrote the film with Warren Late, who went on to have a very busy career on the American show Law and Order Criminal Intent and its sister programme Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Now, producer Lloyd Kaufman, of course, is infamous for his trashy aesthetic label, Troma, which he himself has produced tons of titles, like Silent Night, Bloody Night, uh, the Toxic Avenger series, and Class of Newcomb High, and he's also had cameo appearances in over 300 movies, not including the little intros that he does for all of his Troma collection. He was joined on producing by Michael Hurst, who was uh, Kaufman's right-hand man, who pretty much consistently produced in tandem with Lloyd, and he was also the director of the first three Toxic Avenger movies. Interestingly, the film has now fallen into Troma's catalogue, despite clearly not having that expected Troma tone. The cinematographer was someone who we've encountered before on both I Drink Your Blood and Squirm, and that was Joseph Mangine, who'd also worked on Alligator and Alone in the Dark. The editor was Daniel Lowenthal, who'd later work on Madman, uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold, and also Kickboxer 3, a bit of a mixed bag, really. The special gore effects were done by Josie Caruso, who was Romero's costume and set designer on Dawn of the Dead, as well as Rob E. Holland, who we've mentioned before on House on Sorority Row. He'd also later join the editor, Daniel Lowenthal, on Madman as well, and also Roberta Findlay's 1985 invasion movie, Tenement. The assistant director was James Prozer, who worked as an editor on Bill Lustig's Maniac, and also as a production manager on Doris Wishman's A Night to Dismember. Barry Shapiro was also an assistant director on Mother's Day, and he'd been a production assistant on Two Nasties himself, which was Christmas Evil and Don't Go in the House, and he was also an art director on the very first Toxic Avenger movie. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. The film was released in 1980 to a slew of negativity, being famously despised by Roger Ebert, who said, The question of why anyone of any age would possibly want to see this movie remains without an answer. In Germany, the film was subject to almost 14 minutes of cuts to pass the censor, while it fared no better in Canada either. But arguably, it got the worst treatment in the UK, where the BBFC rejected the film for a cinema certificate, rendering the film banned. However, an uncut version of Mother's Day was released in February of 1984 by VTC, smack dab in the midst of the video nasties scare. The Daily Mail, also around the same time, ran a two-page article covering three directors from America, whom the paper felt were hugely to blame for the influx of American material filtering into the country. Now, they were Myers Arkey, William Lustig, and Charles Kaufman, being criticised for I Spit on Your Grave, Maniac, and Mother's Day, respectively. The testimony of Kaufman claiming that the film was made for profit is taken out of context and it's used to depict a picture of Kaufman as a disgusting, exploitative, vile merchant. This was, of course, during the raids by various police forces across the country and it was during February of 1985 that the constabulary of Greater Manchester Police Force added titles to their own private list of video nasties. It was based on the DPP's official list, but the police added titles to it whenever they felt a title was in breach of the Video Recordings Act. And one of these has been confirmed to be Mother's Day, added to Greater Manchester's police list, and it was seized in that area. 
that the fact that the film was uncut whilst it was banned at the cinema, and the fact that the distributor was VTC, who was already in trouble over Possession, Revenge of the Bogeyman, uh, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, and Delirium, it only added to the furore of seizing the film. So there you have it. Mother's Day was, in essence, an unofficial nasty. It was seized like all the others, and it featured on the police's personal lists. While eventually they did have to return the tapes due to a prosecution not being brought, the films were, in essence, illegal anyway, because of the recent Video Recordings Act. So the film officially disappeared, and was unavailable in the UK until 2015, a whopping 35 years after its release date across the world. It was passed uncut though, and we have the lovable 88 films to thank for it. It's available on Blu-ray and DVD in various regions now for everyone to enjoy. So there you go, that was Mother's Day. So now let's get on to the next film this week, Straw Dogs. American mathematician David Sumner moves to the small English village of Wakeley with his young wife Amy. Amy's ex-boyfriend, Charlie Venner, clearly has dislike for Amy's new husband, and after David witnesses the curmudgeonly drunkard Tom cause a fight in a bar, it becomes clear that most of the village are suspicious of the newcomer. Norman and Chris, two other local idiots who are fixing up David's garage, are also privately hateful of the man and gossip about Charlie getting his end away with Amy, only for Norman to dispel it as a mere rumour. Tensions start arising in the couple's daily life, such as Amy's playfulness clashing with David's seriousness. Tom and the locals also warn another man, John, of his brother, called Henry Niles, who's apparently been getting too close to the girls for their liking, and they want to put him away. Their arguments culminate in Amy accusing David of wanting to leave the US because he didn't want to take a stand and he simply wants to hide. After David engages in a car chase with the locals, he notices John beating his brother for being close to Janice, who's Tom's daughter. Major Scott and Reverend Hood visit David and Amy, but David fails to hit it off with them and he ends up being quite short with them. Later that night, David discovers their cat hanged to death in the closet, and Amy immediately suspects Chris or Norman and presses David to investigate. He invites the pair into the house, but refuses to mention the cat at all, infuriating Amy, especially when David accepts an invitation from them to go hunting. While David is abandoned in a field in order to shoot birds, Charlie enters the Sumner home and forces himself on Amy as she struggles with him. 
It escalates into a slapping match, and after saying no repeatedly, she suddenly seems to relent and consents to Charlie's actions, begging him to hold her tenderly. Norman, however, appears in the house too, and at gunpoint he rapes Amy as Charlie holds her down. Amy does not reveal her ordeal to David, but rebukes him and herself for being cowards for allowing everything to happen. In the morning, for their stunt in abandoning him in the field, David fires the men working on his house and later attends the church hall for a charity evening with Amy. Janice meets with Henry and leaves the building, whilst Amy struggles to be near her rapists as they laugh and joke. Janice's brother notices her absence, while Janice herself is trying to seduce Henry. When someone appears to walk past, Henry tries to keep Janice quiet, only to accidentally smother her. He flees through the countryside and ends up being hit by David's car. And phoning the pub to ask for the doctor, word then gets through to Tom and his posse about the location of Henry. Norman, Chris, Charlie and another thug called Phil burst into David's house intent on attacking Henry. But after they insult David, he finally makes a stand against them and throws them out of the house. An infuriated Tom tries to break in the house while Norman throws multiple stones at their windows and shatters them. Amy tries to convince David to turn over Henry to the mob, but he refuses, stating, I'll not allow violence against this house. Major Scott arrives to try and quell the situation, only to be shot to death by the drunken Tom. Now having snapped, David resolves not to let them in the house and commands Amy to get out of the way when she refuses to help him. Having to slap her to get through to her, he makes her understand that they have gone too far and they will kill everyone once they're inside. Norman tries to prise his way through a window and David binds him to the broken glass with wire before dashing the faces of Tom and Chris with boiling oil through the window. Barricading themselves in the living room, David sends Amy upstairs and awaits by an open window for Tom to creep through, whereupon he hits him with the poker and forces him to blow his own foot off with his gun. An enraged Phil and Chris go in after him and are both beaten to death by David with the poker. Charlie advances on David with his own gun, only for Amy's screams to alert the pair of them. Both of them go upstairs and discover Norman trying to rape Amy again, and Charlie, visibly angry with Norman's muttering that they could both rape her again, shoots him dead with the gun. Taking advantage of the situation, David knocks Charlie away, and the pair struggle on the stairs before falling into the living room, where David gets the upper hand and kills him by slamming a bear trap over his head. Just as the pair think it's over, Phil suddenly attacks David and tries to break his back on the stairs, causing Amy to shoot him dead with the shotgun. Asking Amy if she is okay, David then drives Henry home, with Henry claiming that he doesn't know where home is. David smiles and mutters, that's okay, neither do I. He'd have more than a broken rib if he doesn't tell us where Janice Hedden is. What about Janice Hedden? Took her, he did. What are you done with Janice Hedden, you dirty pervert? Look at here, he played his filthy tricks on Janice Hedden. He took her out, he was seen with his hands on her body. She run, he run after her, and now she, she's missing. Yeah, all right, look, I understand. You got Don't touch him. Don't do that. Put your hands on me. It's none of your business. I never has been. That's fine. But you can't hit him. Listen, Mr. Sumner. We come to get this bloody freak. We're going to get him. With your cooperation or without it. David, stop it! 
Hey, listen. Listen. Henry, did you see Janice Hedden tonight? Of course he did, ain't you? Listening to me? Listen, he did his dirty numbers on her. Just take it easy. Henry, listen to me. Henry, did you take Janice Hedden out of the meeting house tonight? Huh? Listen to me. Please. Gentlemen, he's helpless. I mean, look at him. He couldn't hurt a fly. You'd be better off looking for Janice Hedden than just standing around here. You know? All right, we go find Janice. You go find the doctor. I'm not leaving him here with my wife. I thought you said he was helpless. Yeah, you wouldn't leave him alone with your wife or your kid if you had one. Oh, that's different, huh? Look, look, fella. He's staying here with me until the doctor and the police arrive. He's my responsibility. Your responsibility? That's right. Why? This is my house. Okay, come on. Come on, come on, let's go. Come on. One of the most complicated films that the British Board of Film Classification has struggled with over the years, Sam Peckinpah's film is an unflinching tale of what happens when locals clash with outsiders, and the rather evident but inconvenient truth that it's often locals who have a problem. The film was released in 1971, and it's interesting to note that a lot of what the film is saying is actually still relevant today, if not more so in terms of Great Britain. Right off the bat, the tension is evident in this film – David is clearly a foreigner to this idyllic English village, with children playing in circles in churches and men drinking their pints in pubs. All their heads move and glance at this new intruder in their world, and it's all too obvious that there's dislike. According to Charlie, we take care of our own, and it's not hard to figure out that he and the rest of the village resent the fact that Amy has married an American, an outsider, a foreigner. David himself is rather a mixed bag. On one hand, he is incredibly intelligent and clearly devoted for his wife for moving into a strange area, and he indulges in some of their interpersonal childish antics. But on the flip side, he is a bit of a fusspot, he's quite idiosyncratic, and he'd rather dissociate when things don't go his way, coming across as quite cold and fairly milquetoast. Amy is also similarly diverse. At some times, she's really loving and devoted to her husband, as well as indulging in her husband's more intellectual activities. But she's prone to throwing mini tantrums and playing silly games when something doesn't go her way. The film's events and plot are very typical of hypocrisy of British identity. The locals clearly want David to fit in with their standards, as he's an outsider if he doesn't. So they take him hunting, a supposed masculine and a British pastime, but it turns out to be a mere sham, a distraction so that Charlie and Norman can attack Amy when he's not home. Tom and his hoodlums threaten to sort out Henry as he's too close to girls for their liking, yet some of the very people who are complaining about this sneak into the Sumner house, steal Amy's underwear, or later end up raping her, or at the very least being complicit in its orchestration. They also claim to take care of their own, but they unreasonably attack a barman and smash his property when they're told that the bar is closed. There's a quintessentially British thing about complaining about the very thing that one is guilty of, and being much more harsh in our judgement of others who remind us of ourselves, especially whilst spouting the narrative that we're under attack from foreign entities. 
It's especially notable by the end of the film that David finally adopts their ways with deadly effect. He takes care of their own by safeguarding Henry Niles, and he keeps outsiders out of his home with brutal efficiency. By this time, though, of course, the locals clearly don't like that that treatment is then placed on them. The attack perpetrated by Americans on the British is also evident in the lines spoken by David during his discussion with the priest. There's never been a kingdom given to so much bloodshed as that of Christ. Not only is it a reference to the fact that conservatives in Britain base their behaviour from moral and accepted Christianity, but the quote itself is from French commentator Montesquieu, who's accepted as the person who introduced the idea of separation of powers from church from state, that actually ended up as the ba- one of the bases of the American Constitution. Now this idea, especially of Americans, is not unlike the rhetoric that was devised by the Daily Mail during the Nasty Scare, where as mentioned before, three American directors were attacked as creating a vile product for their own, quote, perverse celebrity status, whilst also being, quote, unrepentant. Now the article goes further and further, and likens their films to an infection of sorts with a clearly anti-American sentiment, quoting... Americans sated by random violence on their own streets cannot get enough of the fictional type on their TV and cinema screens. The UK has provided a fresh outlet. More information on the supposedly American-born idea of contagion can be found in Kate Egan's book Trash or Treasure. Now, the film was released in 1971, before the UK even joined the European Union, so we've clearly had xenophobic anti-foreigner sentiment for a long time. And it's actually quite upsetting to think that in almost 50 years, with modern Islamophobia and contempt for foreigners who are stealing our jobs and taking our benefits, we haven't really changed at all if we have a na- as a nation. We're still that suspicious, imperialistic-minded country who vilify others who don't fit into what we want from them, and we want to keep our borders so secure that we'll quite gladly leave a lucrative union that benefits everybody just so that we can tell brown people to go back to where you came from. Sorry, try not to get too political, but this film really brought it to the forefront for me. As mentioned before, the film's upsetting mainly because the characters who claim to be just and well-meaning are actually anything but. The gang of hoodlums led by Charlie and Tom are the most reprehensible of British folk that you could meet. They're disrespectful, judgmental, loutish and lazy, with a callous, violent nature whenever something doesn't go their way. It's especially maddening when they do the very things that they suspect Henry Niles of doing to others, yet they threaten him and his brother with violence if they ever so much as see a hint of the behaviour. Particularly hard-hitting, as there's plenty of people that are still like this in the UK. Utter rotten hypocrites, basically. Nothing is more unforgivable, though, than what Charlie and Norman do to Amy, and the rape scene itself is rather an odd one, which we'll get into detail later. But the scene at the church hall is particularly tense and upsetting, as you see Amy clearly struggling with the aftermath of her ordeal. The quick edits to noises, laughter, random bits of conversation, children playing, and flashbacks of the event itself, it's all a very disturbing crescendo that quite realistically portrays the trauma of someone recently assaulted in such a fashion. Everything and everyone around you reminds you of the act the violent nature of it almost infecting the body and pervading every image that you look at afterwards. Viewers must sometimes wonder why Amy doesn't tell David right away about her attack, but as a rape victim myself, it's easy for me to understand. When the body takes such an immense shock like that, the brain triggers a flight or fright response. Even if the fight response is invoked, it soon will become the flight. 
This is either because the total shock of what is happening takes over, or that the victim is too physically weak to throw their attacker off. Of course, physical flight is often not an option, so the brain will often kick in and dissociate the person to prevent further mental harm, causing that freeze response. It's the case in Amy's attack, she's clearly hurting and she just has to survive the brutal assault on her, leading to her afterwards retreating to bed with a cigarette, with all the classic signs of a rape victim, including blaming herself and calling David a coward for allowing this to happen. The fact that she does not reveal it at this point is understandable even if there were not complications, but there are. Not only is Amy clearly fed up with David's inaction, and presumably doesn't have enough confidence in him to assume that he'd sort it out for her anyway, but she also later consented to Charlie's actions during the act. I know how controversial that sounds, but we will get onto that in further detail later. But by this point, the flight response in her is still active, and her brain is clearly trying to dissociate from the trauma as much as possible. But during the church scene, where her rapists seem to be having a jolly good laugh, it becomes far too much, and the flashbacks just come flooding back. Of course, enough eventually does become enough, and David resolves to fight back against the hoodlums finally, in a rather tense sequence of events. He does the full Kevin McAllister and plans for the thugs to get their just desserts once they're in the house. He boils cooking oil to throw in their faces, he sets up a giant bear trap, he arms himself with a poker, he basically goes full Lord of the Flies on their asses. Thoroughly deserving, of course, and it's hard not to feel satisfied when the splattery shotgun blasts signal the ends of these dirtbags' lives. And there's a real catharsis when it's over, almost a calm euphoria coming over David as he exclaims, Jesus, I got them all. Even Amy spiritually finds some peace when she finds the strength to save David from being killed by Phil by firing upon him with buckshot from a shotgun. And despite being disturbed, she does calm slightly when she's asked by her husband if she's okay. She is, now in more ways than one, but there's clearly a newfound uneasiness as she's not sure that she likes the new headfast strong David that she'd previously wished for. The acting in this film is then really, really excellent from the two leads, Hoffman and George. The rather complicated and the dissonant feelings that they have with each other and towards the men are evident at different areas of the film, and there's a great deal of verisimilitude in that they actually act like human beings. They have fluctuating thoughts towards everyday's problems and situations. Now, the film was actually based on the 1969 novel The Siege of Trenches Farm by Gordon Williams, in which there were considerable differences. David and Amy were originally George and Louise, of which Louise was much older, and the pair also had an eight-year-old daughter called Karen. Henry is also a legitimate child killer who escapes from an ambulance on his way to prison and flees the scene, worrying that he'll be blamed. Janice is also merely a disabled child who gets lost. She never actually encounters Niles at all in the novel. The reaction from Tom and his cronies is pretty much the same when it's revealed that George has Henry in his house, but George's reaction is much less intense. He doesn't kill any of his assailants, but he simply stands his ground. The rape scene is also absent, and the novel's focus is more on the innate territorial nature and aggression within us all, very similar to William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Peckinpah wanted to get rid of the happenstance events from the book and have clearer moral arguments to make, so only the siege was kept, while the wraparound story was pretty much changed in order to fit in. In order to prepare for some of the changes with the script, Dustin Hoffman and Susan George lived together for two weeks, along with writer David Zalag Goodman, with some of their natural reactions to each other incorporated into the rewrite. 
Some of the elements, however, were abandoned, such as scenes with Tom's family, or the thug's children turning up at the climax to continue the attack on David's house. The film's title, while initially toying with The Siege of Trenches Farm, or The Square Root of Fear, it eventually settled on straw dogs, which is a reference to the religious objects that are burnt in ancient Chinese ceremonies. Canines wrought of straw, the objects were dressed in clothes, despite us not loving them, and then discarded or burnt, despite the fact that we don't hate them. It's probably a reference to the contradictory actions of the thugs in this movie, who claim to be warm and caring, but are anything but to the main protagonists. The film was shot in location in the west of England, namely St. Berrien in Penzance, Cornwall. Standing in as the village of Wakeley, and also Trench's farm was portrayed by Tor Noon in Morva, Cornwall. The cast and crew was also plagued by some injuries, both before and during the filming of Straw Dogs. David Warner had broken his leg before filming, resulting in the limp that we see in the finished film. And because of this injury, Warner was uninsurable as an actor, so in the final film, he ends up being uncredited. T.P. McKenna, who played Major Scott, he also broke his arm during a party with Sam Peckinpah, and as a result, he had to keep his arm in a sling for the rest of the movie. And Peckinpah himself was almost removed from the project entirely, when he contracted pneumonia after drinking all night and ending up in the sea at Land's End. He had to promise to remain sober for the rest of the shoot, and then eventually Peckinpah was allowed to continue. He originally, though, did not tell Susan George about how the dual rape scene was going to play out, and when she discovered the nature of her violation, she initially refused to do it, and she threatened to leave the production. So Peckinpah compromised with her by promising to only focus on her face and eyes during the scene, to eschew any exploitative nudity or sexuality that the scene might have offered. He also had a rather cavalier attitude towards some of the film's shots. For example, Dustin Hoffman was given coconuts for the scene where he was beating Chris to death with a poker, so that the actor could smash them with a bit of careless abandon and a bit of smiling, to give David's character a sick enjoyment of what he's actually doing. Another scene, when David walked into the pub for a scotch, the onlookers weren't being suspicious enough on camera. So on one take, Peckinpah had Hoffman walk in without his trousers on, and it got the reaction that Peckinpah wanted, which he used in the final film. Now, Dustin Hoffman plays main guy David. It's hard for anyone to not know who Hoffman is. He's a prolific actor who's been in loads of things, like The Graduate, Tootsie, Rain Man... Uh, Hook, Outbreak, Sleepers, Sphere, one of my favourite sci-fi horror movies, uh, Kung Fu Panda, and also the recent adaptation of Roald Dahl's SEO Trot. Others were considered for that role, though, like Stacey Keach, who was in Mountain of the Cannibal God, Jack Nicholson of The Shining fame, or even Sidney Poitier from To Sir With Love. Now, Amy was played by Susan George, who'd previously starred in Twinkie and Die Screaming Marianne, Hoffman originally was against her casting, as he felt that David's character would not choose someone so young and fiery to be his wife, but Peckinpah soon insisted. As with Hoffman's role, many actresses were considered for that role, including Helen Mirren, a Charlotte Rampling from The Night Porter, uh, Hayley Mills from the original Parent Trap, and even Judy Geeson from Norman J. Warren's Inseminoid. The brutish, angry drunk Tom was played by Peter Vaughan, who was in Village of the Damned, Brazil, and Zulu Dawn, but most of the world would recognise him as Maester Eamon from Game of Thrones. 
Chris Causey, the ratty little vermin catcher, was played by a familiar face to us Brits, Jim Norton, who most of us will recognise as Bishop Brennan from Father Ted. But he was also in American History X, uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and The Boy with the Striped Pyjamas. The Odd Henry Niles was played by David Warner, who's mainly known for his roles in Tron, Star Trek VI, and Titanic, whilst his brother John was played by actor Peter Arne, who was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and also most of the Pink Panther films. Director Sam Peckinpah, of course, had done a variety of westerns before starting on Straw Dogs, and he also went further onto The Wild Bunch, uh, The Getaway, and Convoy. He wasn't explicitly, though, a horror director, and Straw Dogs is probably the only film that he did that broaches these themes. Whilst written collaboratively with Peckinpah, the screenplay was actually completed by David Zeller Goodman, who'd also worked on Man on a Swing, Logan's Run, uh, The Eyes of Laura Mars, as well as the 2011 remake of Straw Dogs. Producer Daniel Melnick worked on a variety of films as well throughout the years, like Altered States, Footloose, Roxanne... L.A. Story, Universal Soldier, The Return, and also the comedy Blue Streak with Martin Lawrence. The music, intriguingly Italian in some of its inappropriateness, was done by Jerry Fielding, who'd worked on The Enforcer, Demon Seed, The Big Sleep, Escape from Alcatraz, and Funeral Home. Now, the initial cinematographer was Brian Probin, who'd worked on The Mango Tree and Downhill Racer, but he left over creative differences. He was swiftly replaced by Arthur Ibbotson, who'd worked on Where Eagles Dare, the war movie with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood, and he also worked on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but he had to leave production as well because of religious reasons. It eventually fell to cinematographer John Coquillian, who'd worked on Witchfinder General, The Changeling, and the 1970 version of Wuthering Heights. And he eventually went on to work with Peckinpah on three of his future films, so it was actually quite a lucky coincidence. Editing on the film was done by Nicholas Roig's editor, Tony Lawson, who'd worked on both Don't Look Now and the Roald Allen adaptation The Witches. He'd also worked on the 90s version of Wuthering Heights and Othello, as well as the horror picture In Dreams. He was aided on the editing side by Roger Spottiswood, who we've mentioned before on Terror Train. There was also three assistant directors on Straw Dogs, one of which was Terry Marcel, who worked on Carry On Cleo and most of the Pink Panther films. Another was Gary White, who also helped Roig on Don't Look Now but also worked on the abominable Dr. Fibes, Star Wars Episode 4 and 5, the Section 3 nasty in Seminoid from Norman J. Warren, and Monty Python's Meaning of Life. The third guy was Michael Murray, who had another wealth of jobs, assisting the director on stuff like Rambo 3, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Return to Oz, American Werewolf in London, Disney's The Watcher in the Woods, and Superman. But recently, he was also a production manager on Christopher Nolan's films like The Dark Knight Trilogy and Inception. The special effects, too, were also done by people that we've encountered before. John Richardson from The Devils, and Peter Hutchinson from Turkey Shoot. Now, this film, too, has a rather chequered release history, with various controversies surrounding the film's subject matter. While in Ireland, the rape scene was removed in its entirety, and the US theatrical cut lost a few seconds of violence and most of the second rape scene, 
Straw Dogs was actually released in UK cinemas with an X rating in 1971, but it had some slight pre-edits on request of the BBFC director at the time, Stephen Murphy, who wanted the second rape reduced in intensity and the death of Charlie to be reduced to bloodshed. Murphy was heavily criticised for this and took a lot of flack in the newspapers and from irritating campaigner Mary Whitehouse, who verbalised her disgust at things like the Festival of Light. It then had two VHS releases in the UK, one in 1980 from Guild, which was completely uncut, and then one in 1985 from Video Collection, which was the slightly cut R-rated print. Now this, of course, was during the whole Nasties debacle, and Guild, of course, were already in hot water for their releases of Foxy Brown and Terrorize, both of which had already been seized. So it's not hard to imagine that Straw Dogs would have been seized, especially due to the reaction from BBFC censor James Furman. When the Video Recordings Act was passed in 1984, Furman took up objections to a small group of films and stated it would not be appropriate to classify these particular films for video releases at this time, essentially banning them on video personally. These were The Exorcist, Death Wish, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Straw Dogs, the latter of which he was concerned that the viewing public would be able to watch the rape scene out of context, only focusing on the complicated consent that Amy demonstrates in order to fuel misogynistic male fantasies that women secretly want to be raped. The film was resubmitted again in 1997, but it was a heavily pre-cut version which removed the entirety of the second rape. This complicated the issue, though, even further, as it now looked like Amy exclusively enjoyed the rape, which, of course, was completely the wrong idea, so it was rejected again. The BBFC compromised by suggesting an even more stringent cuts list, totalling three and a half minutes. Strangely, the distributor actually accepted these cuts, but then found that they had soon lost the licence to release the film in the UK, so it ended in another rejection in 1999. Furman then left the BBFC later that year and was replaced by Robin Duval, who instantly changed the BBFC's guidelines to no longer cut a work unless it breached criminal laws. To that end, when the uncut version of Straw Dogs was resubmitted in 2002, the BBFC consulted a panel of viewers and engaged with clinical psychologists to verify whether the film's scenes were harmful. It was pretty much unanimous that the film was not endorsing rape or violence, and therefore it was passed for home release finally. It is available today in various formats, and the film also garnered a 2011 remake that is set in Miami, starring James Marsden in the title role. So that was Straw Dogs, everybody. Lot to say about the two films this week. I hope you're all still awake and not too lulled into slumber. 
Thanks as ever for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. But as usual, if you have any feedback yourself on these films, or any of our future or past coverage, then do get in touch via Twitter and Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch via email too, through nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. But next week on our 30th episode, that's a bit of a milestone really, isn't it? We're tackling something that's considerably less complicated and less controversial, I guess. Zombie non-sequels. So, in essence, they're zombie films, but they're actually from a particular subset, which I'll explain now. When Lucio Fulci released Zombie Flesh Eaters, its Italian title was Zombie 2, to follow on from the unrelated Dawn of the Dead, which was simply titled Zombie in Italy. A spate of sequels followed Zombie Flesh Eaters, only one of which is actually official. There are, however, a whole string of sequels to Fulci's original release all over the world, all of them unofficial, and they're merely remarketed to cash in on the success of Fulci's film. It was called Zombie in America, and America seems to have the most numerous releases that are called Zombie, so therefore the collective non-sequels are often referred to as the Zombie series. To that end, we've chosen two of them that enter this category. The first one is Killing Birds, which is often known as Zombie 4, or Zombie 5, depending on which region you're in, and Panic, which is known in Greece as Zombie Flesh Eaters 4. That's not all, however. Be prepared for a few surprise episodes this week, as I've been extra busy in the last few days, and there'll be more to come this week other than episode 30. So, until then, thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you later next week. Farewell! Farewell!